As you're looking in your Bibles to Psalm 73, um, just as a reminder, uh, Pastor Brent started us off last week in the Psalms. You may recall that he said it's broken down into five books. Uh, book one would be known as Songs of Relationship, and they're from chapter one or Psalm one to Psalm 41. And then book two, Songs of Redemption, Psalms 42 through 72. And then tonight we're going to look at Songs of Refuge, Psalm 73 through 89. And then uh, also we're going to get into book four, which is Songs of Rebellion's Cost, Psalms 90 through 106. We're certainly not going to be covering all those psalms tonight because we're going to be here for quite a while. But um, I don't know about you, I, I love the psalms. Uh, when I first became a Christian, um, I found the psalms by flipping through my Bible and I began to read some of them and I just loved um, the things that were being said uh, about God, about me as a, as a human being, uh, about relationships with others. And um, I found later on that Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other book. And I think for that reason alone, the Psalms are worth reading and, and studying and memorizing and meditating upon. Um, I always find the Psalms my go-to scripture when I'm going through a difficult decision, when I have to make a difficult decision, or if I'm going through a difficult time. Because I find in the Psalms so often someone else has, has gone or is going through the same thing as me or similar things than what I'm going through. And there's such... Um, yeah, there, there, there's just such a relief to know that I'm not the only one going through this. And I, I'm sure you found that true as well. That uh, It's easier to know, it's easier to bear up under something when you know someone else has gone through something similar, you know. So I encourage you, um, you know, don't, don't suffer in your, in your doubt or your fear or your despondency or your trouble or whatever it may be. Go to the Psalms. And begin to read through them and, and begin to, to see how God will minister to you. I really encourage you to do that. Because I find in the Psalms, God is so clearly defined for us. He's so clearly revealed, um, not only in his majesty and his power, but also in his splendor. And we see in the Psalms, God's providential care for his creation, for us for men and women. And I think if, if we had no other book, you know, if we were stuck on, a, on an island somewhere and the only, the only book we had with us were the book of Psalms, I think we could really uh, come away with knowing the Creator intimately just by reading the Psalms. And we could know that he has a plan of salvation. And we, we could know that there is, in fact, a savior of mankind. That's all found in the Psalms. In the Psalms, we also find, and I think Brent mentioned this as well, he, uh, I believe he said that we can, we can see in the Psalms that man is honestly portrayed in all of our issues, all of our our troubles, if you will, our, our hopelessness, our, our anger, our doubt, our fear, our lust, our, our sicknesses, diseases, and, and also our joy and our happiness um, and sorrow and death. But most of all, our relationship 
with God and his relationship with us. Now, Pastor Skip Heitzig, he says that the, the, Psalms, the Psalms truly is universal in scope. I don't think there is, there is anything that isn't covered in the Psalms. So wise people look to the Psalms in order to find guidance and to find strength and knowledge and help in times uh, of good, in times of bad, in times of trouble. Um, For example, Psalms 9 verse 9 says, the Lord is a refuge in times of trouble. Psalm 46 1 says, God is our refuge and strength. Psalm 59 verse 16 says, I will sing of your power. And Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we can go to the Psalms and we can find exhortation, we can find exaltation, wisdom, and strength. So let's take a look at Psalm 73, which is the first psalm of this third book then. And and Brent had also said, if you recall, that um, many of the psalms draw parallels Uh, Parallels between good and bad, um, um, gosh, uh, uh, mankind and God, so many parallels. In Psalm 73, we find those things happening. There's a parallel being explained in Psalm 73. So let's read through this psalm together uh, right now up to verse 16. So we're looking at the songs of refuge, and this is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. To such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride preserves, or pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, These are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened or chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So this is how... Uh, Asaph begins his discourse and and as he compares the good with the bad or the bad with the good. Now, Asaph was one of David's worship leaders. He was a choir director, and he's the author of this psalm, and he's the author of Psalm 73 through through 83. And this psalm is dealing with the problem of evil. And nothing's changed, folks. Uh, Here we are 3,000 or plus years since this psalm was written. And dare I say, there's still evil in the world. How do we deal with it? Well, the psalm 
talks to us about some of these things. It begins, first of all, with an affirmation of faith. Truly, God is. And we find that same affirmation all through Scripture, right even at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. Truly, God is. This is such an important note for us because I think, like all people, we, we will run into situations or events that, that will shake our faith, that will, will challenge our beliefs. And one of Asaph's questions here concerns, concerns how God allows the wicked to prosper. And, and you know, that, that is a conundrum. I mean, we scratch our head and we go, I don't get it. Like, why does this allow, is this allowed to continue? We look around our world and we see the wicked living in boastfulness, in prosperity of wickedness. So why do they prosper while we struggle? When we're struggling to do the right things, we're trying to be obedient to God. We're trying to uphold the word of God. We understand and know what sin is. And while we acknowledge that we're sinners in need of grace, we struggle with the fact that we, we can't seem to stop sinning. Why is it that we struggle with following the right path? And it may even appear to us that the wicked don't seem to care. They just go about their business. They just do the stuff and they don't care if they're, if they're wicked or not or if their actions are wicked. We see that they are violent and boastful and proud. And Asaph says they even set their mouth against the heavens. There's a lot more of that happening today. More and more denial of God. Even, even condemning God for the evils that are in the world. The tragedy is that there are many professing believers who seem to follow the same path, who seem to enjoy friendship with the world, even though we're, we're told to guard our hearts against the world. We're not to be friends of the world. I think back to Psalm 1, and it says there, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. And then it ends with, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The sad, simple truth is that Men like these and those that follow are sinning. We can't, we can't deny that. If we do the same thing, then we are sinning. And Asaph says that they come and drain the waters of a full cup. That's in verse 10. Now that is a metaphor for sin. The cup. 
And you may recall that Jesus in the garden drank a cup that was full of the sin of man. The wrath of God was contained in that cup. And Jesus begged the Father, can, can, I, can I not do it some other way? Can I not do it except by drinking this cup? You see, he knew that we needed to be set free from the power of sin and death. And he was prepared to take upon himself our iniquities and, and, and our sin. And he suffered and died in our place. And yet before he did, he begged the Father to remove it from him. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. As believers, we are conformed daily into the image of God's only begotten Son. And I think this is such a, a powerful reminder for us that, that we are not to give in. We are not to uh, do like the masses do, like the world does, but we are to do like our Savior did. May this be our prayer tonight. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Asaph then wonders at verse 13, have I cleansed my heart in vain? Am I doing what I do for nothing? And these, these thoughts plagued him as he, as he struggled with this dichotomy of, of seeing evil and, and seeing it prosper and wondering why, why do I have to live different when they don't? Now, there was a, a time in my own life, and, and maybe you can identify with this, when I thought I had lived a, a, a good life, a righteous life. I was trying to be a, a law-abiding citizen. I was trying to do right. I, I obeyed the law. I worked hard. I, um, I even believed that I was a child of God. I mean, we hear that all the time. Well, everybody's a child of God. And I believe that. I didn't know anything about God. I never went to church as a child. I'd, maybe by the time I was 20, I'd been in a church, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times, usually for a wedding or a funeral. And yet I thought I was a good person, that I had it all together. And then a, a time came when all that I thought I had done right came to an end, completely fell apart. And I began to, to question my beliefs. And I, and I doubted what I believed. And I thought, why do I believe what I believe? Well, I believed what I believed because I had been told that's the truth. But I had no evidence of the truth. I, didn't, I wouldn't have been able to pick the truth out of, a, out of a, a lineup. I didn't know what truth looked like. I just thought I was doing the right thing. It was my truth. And during that dark time, I also began to wonder if how I had lived my life had even been worth it. I thought I had denied myself 
certain pleasures of life because it was the right thing to do. And I came to the conclusion that I had wasted a good part of my life and that my life was going to change from that moment on. So I decided that from that time on, I was going to live my life on my own terms. I was going to do what I wanted to do. And it didn't matter what effect it would have on somebody else. This was my life. And I was going to do what I wanted to do. I was going to do the same thing that I saw many others doing and apparently weren't suffering any consequences. They seemed to be enjoying life more than I was. But thank God that he had a different plan for me. And he soon revealed it. Because in all of that turmoil, all of that, that darkness, all of that, that thinking about, you know, leaving the good behind and just doing what I wanted to do, God spoke. And I was encouraged not to give in to my dark thoughts, but to seek him. Now, that, that's, that's a heck of a thing to ask somebody. Well, just go and find God. Where do you go? Do you know where to go? I didn't have any Christian friends. I didn't know anybody that went to church. So I began, I began looking in all the wrong places. I studied with Jehovah's Witnesses. I studied with Mormons. I attended Buddhist services, read books on Eastern religions. And it just got worse. Nothing got better. And like Asaph, I came to learn that I had not cleansed my heart in vain because at just the right time I called out to God and in my way of thinking I said, Lord, I've looked for you. I'd, I'd spent maybe a year or two going through this process and I said to Lord arrogantly, I said, Lord, I've looked for you and I can't find you. So if you exist, you need to show yourself to me. Never challenge God, because you'll lose. Now, nothing miraculous happened. There wasn't a burning bush experience. There wasn't choirs of angels that appeared or a man with a sword. Nothing like that. But slowly and surely, God began to reveal himself to me until one day, I was alone by myself in my living room, thinking about these things, thinking dark thoughts, and I turned the TV on, and lo and behold, there was a televangelist on TV. And he said, you think you've been looking for God and you haven't been able to find him, and you don't know why. And those, he almost phrased exactly what I was thinking. And he says, I'm going to tell you after this commercial. <laughs> so I waited for the 90 seconds or whatever it was. And I mean, he, he had me, he had me hooked. And he comes back and he says, I'm going to tell you why. And in about 10 minutes, he went through the Ten Commandments and he explained what sin was. And I had never heard that before. 
And he says, it's not that God has separated himself from you, but that you are separated from God because of sin. And everything that I had thought was right melted right at that moment. And I knew the truth. And he invited me to ask Jesus into my heart, and I did. And that was 30-some-odd years ago. It's so sad, friends, when we see a follower turning away from God for whatever reason. Because not only does it affect them, but it affects others. I don't know if we ever, ever think about that. But we turn away from God, and it affects others. You see, how we walk with the Lord, how we interact with other believers is important. Not only to us, but to others as well. Other believers, especially young believers, are looking at you. They're they're seeing how you live your life. They're looking to see whether or not uh, you're going to compromise what you say you believe. And if they see you compromising, well, they feel that they're able to compromise as well. And I, I learned early on that if I fail to uphold the word, why would I expect anyone else to? I want you to see what Asaph says about this in verse 15. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generations or the generation of your children. You see, Asaph realized that if if he abandoned the faith because of the turmoil, turmoil that was going on in his mind and in his heart, he could destroy everything that he had done up until that point. Everything that he had taught in the temple, every song that he had sung in the sanctuary. Like we sang tonight, Jesus, I love you. And so he he struggled with the flesh and he struggled with the spirit. And folks, that is a very real struggle. And don't, don't condemn a brother or a sister when they're going through that kind of a, a spiritual flesh struggle. Because even the great apostle Paul went through it when he wrote in Romans 7, 24, he said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's how I felt that night. I, I felt ready to end it. I thought, you know, this is it. I'm, I'm done. I am done trying. I am done working. I am done. Who will deliver me? And what does Paul say next? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Let's see what Asaph does. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. 
They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakens. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. Asaph's solution to his problem was to go into the sanctuary of God, to go into the temple and worship and pray. And he sought the Lord in his anguish. He didn't leave what he, what he knew. He clung to what he knew so that he could deal with what he didn't know. You see, in the temple, he was with other believers. In the temple, he would hear the word of God. In the temple, he would be a part of a community of believers who would love him and pray for him and exhort him. And when we are troubled in mind and spirit, I believe that's what the Lord is telling us tonight we ought to do. Not separate from the body of Christ, but come into the body of Christ, cling to the body of Christ, hold on to the body of Christ. In the seven year, 17 years that I pastored Calvary Chapel, Richmond, I, I met many people who said they were believers, and I had no reason not to believe that they were believers, who walked away from the very thing which was their salvation. And I don't want that to be true of us. So I want to I exhort you tonight. Hold fast to your faith. You may not understand it all, but what you do understand, cling to that. And then ask the Lord to give you more understanding. Give him time. Let's be reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the return of Christ. And, and that's what we need. When we are in a moment of crisis, what we need is to have Jesus come to us. And the Bible says that when we draw close to him, he draws close to us. So the secret of dealing with our, our doubts and our fears and our anguish is to draw closer to Jesus. And we see Asaph seeking the Lord and worshiping, worshiping him. And then he got a new perspective. He realized that the ungodly life wasn't the true life. That in fact only destruction lay ahead. 1 John chapter 2 verse 17 says, And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And you may remember this, what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That is the promise of our Savior. And Asaph draws us a picture 
of what the world offers. And what the world offers is only a dream. And it's here today and gone tomorrow. The world and everything in it, the Bible says, is going to crumble one day. And the dreams of many are going to turn to nightmares. And so in humble contriteness, Asaph does what we ought to do. Calls out to the Lord and he says in verse 22, I was so foolish. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And then he says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You get a picture of a father with a little child taking him across the freeway of life. He took me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. And so the psalm that Asaph wrote began with doubt and despair as he painted a picture of a godless life, verses 4 through 12. And in dark comparison with the light of living for God, verses 23 through 28, the righteous are held by the hand of God who guides us with his word. But the ungodly are deluded by fantasies and feelings. And their destiny, is uh, our destiny, is eternity with God. But the destiny of the wicked is to perish, according to verse 27. So for a moment then, a moment in, in time, a blip in time, it may appear as if the wicked are actually prospering, as if they have everything they could ever want or need. Except God. They don't have God. But what we have in Christ is of far greater worth than anything the world could ever offer, and it will be that way for all eternity. It's not just for 70 or 80 or 90 years we might have on earth. It's for all eternity. And so, in the presence of God and his fellow believers, Asaph was grounded in the faith, and he turned his doubt into light to share with us. Here we are, 3,000 years later, reading what he went through, gaining understanding, gaining faith, gaining strength. And he turned his doubt into light. And he exhorts us to never give in to despair and to draw continually upon God and to hope and trust in him only. We're going to move on into chapter 84 or Psalm 84. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah uh, led worship along with the sons of Asaph. Uh, but not only were they worship leaders, they were also guardians of the gate. They guarded the gates into the temple. 
And God said that the temple would be the place where his presence would dwell. And we know uh, from uh, what Brent has taught us regarding the temple, how in the Holy of Holies sat the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, with the cherubim angels uh, covering the mercy seat, and there in between the cherubim would be the presence of God. Now, the psalm begins with, how lovely is your tabernacle? Uh, two years ago, almost to the month, I traveled to the Netherlands. And uh, I had lived in the Netherlands as a child uh, from the age of, ooh, I think, four to about ten. And uh, I'd never been back. So that was the first time in 50 years that I had gone back to Holland. And uh, we went to um, the city of uh, Utrecht, which is, you heard about it in the news just a few days ago. There was a shooting there. Uh, but that city has the highest church tower in the whole nation. And uh, it was built between 1312 and 1382, which is almost 300 years before the first European settlement came to Canada. So that church existed before Canada was even a nation. I mean, that, that was staggering to me. And, and I, I really enjoyed my time in Europe because uh, history comes alive there. Uh, the buildings, the architecture is just staggering. If you've had a chance to travel Europe, I think you know what I'm talking about. And there are a lot of magnificent buildings in Europe. But the temple, which was built by Solomon, according to the design that David put down, uh, puts, puts every building to shame. It was far grander and more opulent than any other temple ever built. The amount of gold that covered the walls and all of its ornamentation was, was staggering. I, I remember reading somewhere, and it was in the hundreds of billions of dollars in today's in today's currency. Um, but I, I want to say to you, as, as magnificent as that building was, it wasn't the structure that made it lovely. It wasn't the gold that made it valuable. It was the presence of God. That's, that's what made that building what it was. It was the presence of God. And it was that presence that caused the psalmist to proclaim in verse 2, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now, we had great worship music tonight. And thank you, worship team, for that. Love the songs that were chosen. But you know, it's not the music that made the Temple of Solomon great. It wasn't the choirs of Levites. It wasn't the skillful playing of the instruments that were designed by, by David. It wasn't even the fellowship with other believers that drew the psalmist to this building. As, as wonderful as all those things are, and we, we enjoy worship and we enjoy prayer and we enjoy fellowship, as wonderful as all, all of these things are, It was the living God. It was the living God who the psalmist longed for and which he says, I became faint for, faint to experience. And it was that 
which caused his heart and flesh to cry out. And that, I believe, is the true spirit of worship. That is the heart of worship. It's the reason for worship. It's the reason why we gather. It's the reason why we sing. It's the reason why we receive what we receive. Look at verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. And I pray tonight that our reason for gathering tonight and on Sundays and during times of fellowship, our, our reason is to be with the Lord and to be with God's people. And it should never grow stale. Now he said, I make pilgrimage. Now Jews were required to make pilgrimage three times a year to the temple on three feast days. It was their duty to attend. But duty can grow stale. Duty can grow boring. And, some, and, and so it is for some believers. Sundays just become simply a duty. And a relationship which is built on duty is not a relationship it's merely a formality. Those of us that are married, if we are with our wives or our husband out of duty, that's not a relationship. God doesn't want us to come to him on a formality. He wants us to come for intimacy, for relationship. We come to know God personally and intimately and consistently and to understand the depth of his love for us and to know that it is greater. His love for us is greater than we can imagine and our love for him should be more than a duty. I like to say it's a necessity. As a deer pants for the waters... So my heart longs after you. You're, you give me breath. I mean, that's, that's not duty. That's intimacy. We gather on a, on a Sunday and then a week goes by. And in that week, we've walked the highways and the byways of this world and the, the sweat and grime and the stink and filth of sin clings to us again. And the wickedness which is so prevalent in this world weighs on our hearts and we are overwhelmed by it. Maybe you're here tonight. It's only Wednesday and you've already had a week of weeks, a bad week. Perhaps you've stumbled and fallen and you're questioning, who am I in Christ Am I even a believer? Does God truly love me? How could God love one like me? Maybe your mind is filled with doubt like Asaph experienced in Psalm 73. Make pilgrimage. Make pilgrimage. Come into the house of the Lord where even the sparrow 
finds a home and a swallow finds a nest. Dwell in his house, praise him, be washed in the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit as you pray to the Lord. The God whom Psalm 65 says, and look this up, Psalm 65 says, the one who hears prayer. That's not just a statement, folks. That is his name. The God who hears prayer. And it's a marvelous name for God. His character and his nature is to hear and answer prayer. He heard my prayer in my living room, in front of a television set. Lord, I need you. Come into my life. And he did. And that's really all I said. We don't have to say much. God knows what we want to say before we even say it. It is his attribute to hear, to not only hear, but to hear and answer prayer. To you, the psalmist says, all flesh will come. And we must come. We must come in order to find salvation, in order to find restoration, to find redemption, to experience newness of life. That's what born again means, to be born again, to be renewed. The old being passed away and the new has come. So cry out to him. Cry out to the one who hears prayer. And the psalmist says, O Lord of hosts, in verse 8, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. So I ask you, is there another place you'd rather be? Verse 10 says that a day in your court is better than a thousand. Rather a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of, the, of wickedness. Let's read together to the end of the psalm. Verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I mean, what a, what a great ending to a psalm. To be blessed because we trust in him. I, early in my, in my walk, there were so many times when I said, I don't get it, I don't understand this. And God said, I didn't call you to understand. I called you to trust. And I said, well, how do I do that, Lord? How do I trust in you when I don't know you? He said, if it was easy, it wouldn't be faith. God's funny that way. But you know, I, I didn't give up. And I know you're not giving up either. You're here tonight hearing these things from our Father who loves us more than we can ever possibly know. You see, if the Lord makes room for even common birds like sparrows and uh, swallows, he will make room for you. He will make room for you. He will make room to give you grace. He will make room to give you mercy. And he says, no good thing will I withhold from you. So truly, we are blessed when we trust in the Lord. Duty doesn't provide assurance. When I was in the military, I, I had to perform my duty. But I had no assurance I was going to get anything out of it. 
I had no assurance that I would even be there tomorrow. I had to do my duty. Duty doesn't provide assurance, but relationship does. So make God your refuge. Make God your refuge. And not only on Sundays, but every day. Make, make his word yours every day, even if you can only read a verse or two. A verse or two will turn into three or four, and then into a chapter, and then into a book. And before you know it, you've read through the whole Bible. And what do you do then? You start again, because he's got more for you to learn. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he is in you. We come now to the fourth book of Psalms, the Songs of Rebellion's Costs. And we're going to look, look at Psalm 90, and we're told that it's a prayer of Moses. I noticed the clock's gone. I don't even know what time it is. Okay, we got some time. Psalm 90, and that's the, the first psalm of book four. And we're told that it is it's a song written by Moses, which makes this psalm then the oldest in the book. Moses wrote this because of events that had occurred in Numbers chapter 20. His sister Miriam had died. He uh, had struck the rock twice, disobeying God. And consequently, he was forbidden by God to enter into the promised land. And then his brother Aaron died. So he had, uh, Moses had had quite a time. And Israel's persistent rebellion had tremendous consequences, as we know. Because they wouldn't enter the promised land. God said, you're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years until every man over the age of 20 dies. All those that refused to obey me were going to die in the desert. And they did. And even, even then, there was a struggle as they came close to the promised land again, to the River Jordan. And then Moses' own rebellion, his personal rebellion, kept him from God's promise. I, you know, if that's not enough to knock your socks off, I don't know what is. I mean, you've, you've, been, you've been obedient and doing this since you were 85 years old. You've brought people to the Lord. You've taken them through the sea, you've taken them through the desert, you've fed them and clothed them and prayed for them and, and interceded for them and, and you've seen their rebellion and then you rebel yourself. And the result is you're not allowed to enter the promised land. What does Moses do? What would you do? Well, Moses was disappointed. Of that we can be sure. He'd even spent some try time trying to persuade God to relent. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 26, Moses says, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Speak no more to me 
of this matter. But Moses didn't walk away. He didn't turn his back on God. What do we see him doing? He turned to God. And he becomes an example for us to turn to God in humility and repentance when we stumble. Let's take a look what Moses writes in his prayer, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So an acknowledgement of who God is and what God has done. I pray that when we begin our day, every day, that we take a moment and go, you know, you, you were God yesterday. You're God today. You'll be God tomorrow. And regardless of what my day was like yesterday, I want to walk with you in it today. And I want to continue walking with, it, with you tomorrow. Because you are God. You have saved me. You have healed me. You have provided for me. You, whatever, whatever God has done for you, remember those things. So despite his disappointment, <clears throat> Moses thinks about the intimate relationship that he, and not, not only he, but Israel also had had with God throughout the years in the wilderness. Now the words dwelling place uh, can be translated refuge. And I, and I like that. You know, we, we think of a dwelling place as, you know, a place to go and dwell. But a refuge is something that protects us. We've been in, in buildings, I'm sure, where you've maybe walked th through the stairwell and you'll see an area set aside as an area of refuge. See, that's a, that's a safe place in a building if it's on fire. Uh, this is where, where the firefighters will come to find people who perhaps can't make it down the stairs on their own. And that's the way it is with us. We can't, we can't do it on our own. We need God. And so we need to find that place of refuge. And guess what? It's God. He's our place of refuge. Dwelling place is translated refuge or even den. And that now we're, we're sensing that intimacy in relationship with God. So despite rebellion, God hadn't pushed them away. He didn't say, okay, you didn't, you didn't cross the Jordan, I'm done with you. You know, do what you want. Die in the desert, go back to Egypt, whatever. You're not crossing the Jordan. He says, no, I'm going to deal with rebellion. I'm going to deal with sin. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you across the Jordan. I'm going to do what I promised you I would do. And he does that for us as well. He doesn't reject us, but he draws us in. You see, our relationship with God is not just for today. It's for eternity. I'm getting older. I'll be turning 61 in just a, a week or two or whatever. And I'm really beginning to realize how brief life is. The days just seem to be flying. Like, I don't even count days anymore. It's, oh, it's Sunday. Oh, it's Sunday again. Oh, it, oh it's Sunday again? <laughs> you know, I just, I, I can't even, I know because it's tonight, I know it's Wednesday, but I, I don't ask me tomorrow. I have no idea what it's going to be tomorrow, but... 
But life is brief, and it's really not that hard to see the days just flying by. And, you know, maybe some of you young people here tonight don't realize that, but, you know, wait, wait till you're 50. <laughs> you realize how quickly they go by. And we might not like to think about it, but I'll be 61, and I'm thinking, eh, you know, maybe 15, 20 years you know, maybe, that, maybe that's all I got left. I got less time ahead of me than I have behind me. We don't like to think about those things, but, you know, nevertheless, it's the truth. The end is approaching quickly. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, the psalmist Moses writes, he says, For the thousand years, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. And like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. He's talking about time, just passing by. I mean, we think 40 years in the desert. Moses is looking back at the end of life and going, and those 40 years were like that. And now I'm facing eternity. And he observes in this psalm the price of sin, which is death, verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our year, our years like a sigh. Our secret sins. Man, if that's not enough to terrify you, I don't know what is. It terrifies me. I'm thinking, okay, I, Lord, I know all the stuff I've done, and you've seen all that stuff, but... You've even seen the stuff that no one knows about? The things that I thought I did in secret? You've seen, oh, I'm in a lot of trouble without the Lord. You see, sin leads to death always. Whether it's death of a relationship or our health. And ultimately, sin results in what the Bible refers to as the second death, if sin goes unrepented and unforgiven. So what are we to do? Well, the answer is in this prayer of this man of God. Look at verse 12. Moses writes, So teach us to, to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. None of us know how many days we have. You know, I, I said perhaps I've got 15, maybe 20 years, but I mean, it could end tonight. I don't know. You don't know. So Moses is saying, because we don't know this, be sure that you use your time wisely. I, I sometimes think back that I was, I was 28, almost 29 when I came to know Christ. And I think back, oh, the 28 years that I wasted but God says that he will always restore what the locusts have eaten. It's never a waste. I mean, I think of the, the prisoner on the cross next to Jesus who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the promise of Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. There was no waste in that. We have eternity. So ask God then to make each day count. Make each day count for something. 
something of eternal value. We know, the, we know what the scripture says. Don't store up for yourself what moth, uh, moth and rust destroys, but store up for yourself a treasure in heaven. As we close, think on these words of our Lord and Savior in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Something to think about, to meditate on in the next few days until we gather again on Sunday. So next week we're going to finish the Psalms in book five. But what we want to do, and Brent made mention of it um, at the end of his message last Wednesday, what we want to do is think over the next week on some of the psalms, things that, that really minister to your heart, uh, psalms that you love, uh, a portion of a psalm that really speaks to your heart. And then come prepared to share that next Sunday. Um, as believers, when we gather together, we're to encourage one another and we're to exhort one another. And um, it's good to hear from each other and understand why a particular portion of scripture ministers to us. Because you never know, there might be somebody here who needs to hear that word. I think it's important. So come prepared to share. I'm sorry, next Sunday, or next Wednesday, sorry, next Wednesday. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that then. Yeah, next Wednesday. So let's pray. Oh, you who hear and answer prayer, we call out to you, Lord, to give you thanks for all that you've done for us, that you've given us your word tonight. Lord, we have covered just a small portion of your wonderful books of Psalms, and yet we see the power in each and every word. Lord, there's so much for us to explore. I pray that all of us would take time to do that, Lord, to explore your word, to to seek you and to know you and to understand you and to, to, to call out to you, to cry out to you, Lord, with the things that are, are troubling us. I pray that we would never be afraid, never be ashamed, Lord, for you already know and you know all things. That, Lord, you desire to unburden us. You desire to set us upon a rock. You desire to fill us with power and with strength. And, Lord, Without a doubt, we know this is true, for your word declares it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless each and every heart here tonight. Lord, be with those that are struggling. Comfort them, strengthen them, lift them up. Lord, I pray that they would draw close to you and know that you draw close to them. Lord, bless our church. Father, I pray for our, our brothers and sisters in Mexico that are, are serving you. Uh, be with Pastor Brent and, and all those that, that are going into the orphanages and other places, Lord, to share your love. Lord, may they be filled and just overflowing with the joy of the Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.